leave out the first child, break in the small room when I, Suzanne slept on the wall side. She had to crawl over me every night. And every night she, she would crawl over me and elbow me. <laughs> yes, screw me up, letting know that she was nursing and I was sleeping. <laughs> She has not stopped. Um, let's see. Um, Mary, where are you? you have, I think it was, didn't you ask about, was it you that asked about the books at the end of the class last time? About Richard Latimer, Richmond Latimer? Yeah. I, um, it's, it's Richmond Latimer. Sorry for the confusion. So if, you, if you're ordering the Iliad the Odyssey, it will be not Richard Lattimore, but Rich, Richmond. Richmond Lattimore, okay? This is the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we're doing Robert Fitzgerald's, the uh, Aeneid. It's really important that you get the right translations because some of them are really, um, they're a young, um, gosh, seminarian. St. Francis, who left several months ago, was reading, I think Dante, was reading Dante in a, a Longfellow, 19th century American poet. You just should not read it. It's just, oh, just so, I mean, it's Longfellow in verse and just, and I gave, and recommended the music, and he came up one day and he said, he couldn't understand it before, but he could understand the music. It's just that the translations are sometimes as different from night and day. It's that important. So, um, I think I think we're all set. There's no business yet. If everybody could pull out the uh, the Shakespeare sonnets, we're going to read two sonnets tonight. And we do read Matthew. Um, by the way, it's just good to see the two of you again. Thank you. You too. Congratulations, Ken. Last week I made a point of looking for the two of you and I embarrassed myself because I was missing the young couples, you and Chris and, and Teresa. 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 Yeah. Because it was there's a problem at St. Francis, my the web, they took the audios off the home, the church home site, put put them on the web. And there was a difficulty and I want to get this on a blog. And so okay. I was hoping for somebody who had technical experience and I thought you might and Chris because of what he'd done. And because this is such a sensitive group that took offense at what I said. None of us, the rest of us, are not young anymore. <laughs> okay. Um, any prayer requests tonight? From anybody? Any prayer requests? Yes.
Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life in you, the, uh, the gift that we are to each other, your presence with us this day, particularly uh, the ways in which we are gifts to each other. And, um, and by that I mean often crosses. Um, we're not in heaven, we're on the way. And so often, in our struggles with each other and our families, we often have burdens to bear. Too um, many to name, but um, for the gift that we are to each other, um, we offer you thanks and for all that you do to help us grow closer together, particularly through our trials. Um, thank you. Um, in the middle of the Mass, it says to be always and everywhere thankful. Strengthen all of us in this room to learn to be thankful, maybe most especially when it's hard and the burdens are heavy. Um, I ask a blessing on the work that we're doing together. This is um, serious, certainly for me, that we not just read this literature as literature, that um, we find in these poets and in each of our lives, the action going on in our lives, and, um, and we're approaching them to see if we can't learn to see you more clearly. You would work in the world. It's not always easy to do. It's easier to go back to the Bible, where as a figure you move you know, among other men and women. In these works, we're in our own world, and um, so often, because of our maybe our literal mindedness, we don't see you. And we're grateful for the help these folks have given us. Open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts um, to see you, feel you and most especially to put you into practice what we do. Um, ask a best, um, special blessing for Peggy and Tom and their pilgrimage. Um, keep them safe. Um, let everything that happens deepen them in their faith. That's why they're there. Um, let them come closer to you. Um, everything that unfolds there. Um, be with Denise in her um, chemo. Um, let be successful. And um, in this time of trial, whatever her, whatever's going on in her heart, uncertainties, fears, now quiet her heart, let this difficulty strengthen in her a spirit of trust so that no matter what happens, um, she grows closer to you. And, um, and for, Sorry, your special intention, not mine. Say your name. For Mike. For Mike. Lynn. But it's your intention for him. Yeah. For Lynn, special intention for Mike, for both of them. Um, whatever is on our heart, watch over that boy, um, that young man. Um, let the concerns in her heart be answered. And help her to find your meaning in it, um, not just hers and Mike's. We offer these prayers, and um, what all of us hope is a growing trust in you, our Lord Christ. Amen.
those Greek lyrics where I can and trying to pick out the lyrics that relate to the works that we're reading. In the first couple of weeks, I, I chose lyrics because of, because each, if you remember Supernatural Love and Hopkins of the Number, because in those two lyrics, both of them favorites of mine, we get a, a person rendering a scene which we're to understand that Christ is actually active in the background. Explicitly, the little girl wounding um, herself and Hopkins watching the wind cover the bird and finding in a bird, you know, an image of the um, crucifixion, but the mastery when the bird hovers and um, catches itself and then all of these powers um, explode. They buckle. And there's a brilliance in that moment that that for Hopkins is an analogy of the crucifixion. So in the fire, um, the farmer doing his work, and he says, no wonder, there's no wonder. If any of us have our heads on, we know that there's no wonder. If God made this world, is he never not here? He always is. So no wonder of it. It's there in the farmer, it's there in the fire. He's all around us. Do we see him? So often we get so preoccupied that we don't. But Anyway, in those first couple of words, I was choosing poems just to make explicit what we were about. But since then, I've been trying to pick poems that speak more directly to what we're doing. So we're doing Shakespeare. And last week, I read, I think, was it the last week that I did those that have to power to power? To do What did I do last week? Which? Last week? Yeah. Um, do tonight, I want to do Sonnet 73 and 146. And once again, I want to just make my comments brief because I'd like the poems to stand on their own. Sonnet 73 is one of Shakespeare's most popular love sonnets. It's a sonnet in which he's saying basically, we're mortal and all of us are gonna die soon, and because we are gonna die, we should love those things um, that are most dear to us because we're gonna lose them. And remember that Shakespearean sonnet unfolds by three quatrains, groups of four lines, A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Each, so it's three exempla, three exempla, three illustrations of a common theme. And, and I've said this before, it's so important to something teachers so often don't see. Um, if you thought about the structure of the sonnet, you see there's a philosophic meaning behind it. It's not always clear the structure of the sonnet itself, but it's there. The fact that you can give us three different illustrations of the same thing means they all share in being. Remember, God is, I am, and am, is being itself. So all of these things participate in being, but they're three different things. How can they, how can they be related unless they have something in common, right? So he gives us three examples, three different illustrations of the same thing, and then he makes a conclusion. So what the conclusion does is show us that he's, he, he's capable of seeing, making a generalization. He's capable of seeing what's universal in particulars. So we've got three different particulars, here it's, it's the time of the year, it's winter, it's the time of the day, the sun's going down, and it, a fire's going out. So three different things. And he comes to a conclusion 
It shows they're all interconnected. They all share in being. It's another way of saying everything in life is interconnected. And if that's so, it means there has to be some source behind the wall that interconnects us. He doesn't name it, but he knows it's God. Okay? In the second sonnet, 146, um, he's... He's talking, he's making, um, he's showing his awareness of how foolish it is to keep giving as much attention to his body and worldly things at the expense of his soul. So he, once again, he gives this different example, three different illustrations of the same thing. And then he ends with a twist, and I'm not going to comment on it until the end because I'm going to ask you all what it means. Okay? Two minute quiz. Coming. So, Shakespeare's son, 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves were none or few to hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare room choirs where late the sweet birds sang. The singing's gone. It's winter. Um, things are dying. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset faded in the west which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up golden rest. Sleep is like a form of dying that um, brings an end to the day. And we now see as the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereupon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. Fire burns itself out like what gave it life. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Sonnet 146. Pay close attention now, because this makes a sudden turn at the end. It's all prepared for, but but the paradoxes at the end can seem confusing. They're not. Um, and just know, in the first line, poor soul, the center of my sinful birth, he's talking about his body, but I think he's really talking about his body the way Paul does the flesh. If you've read the letters of Paul, Paul you, know that, you know that Paul does, Paul does, he's not a Manichaean. Paul does not seem, think the body is corrupt. Christ took out a body. I just, we've got to not forget that. Because there's something after Calvin in the Protestant Reformation that makes the body bad. Modern, the modern world hates the body, generally. Um, Paul's not a Manichaean. When he talks about flesh, he's not talking about the body. He's talking about the way we give too much importance to earthly things, the physical things of the earth, at the expense of spiritual. Okay? So by sinful earth here, he means the body, but he also means the things of the earth, you know, the things that we give so much attention to at the expense of our souls. Okay? Sonnet 146. Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth. My sinful earth, these rebel powers array. We dressed up all these things we give ourselves to. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dirt, painting thy outward wall so costly gay? Why do we give ourselves to all these outward things? Why so large cost, having so short a lease, 
we have a short lease on life. Dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend, and live in this mansion, this body? Shall worms inheritance of this excess eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store, um, to build it up. Um, by terms divine, in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. What's he saying in that last cover? Anybody? But how? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store increase it. By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying now. If we stop giving so much time to the body, material wealth, material things, and we start making renunciations, what we do is do away with the death that has hold of our bodies and um, enter more fully into Christ's life. So we defeat death. Okay? It's by, it's by giving too much attention to worldly things that we speed death. I mean, we're just, we're adding to it, we're increasing it. By learning to turn away from it, to make renunciations and pay attention to what's inside, the spiritual thing that will last, like we draw ourselves closer to Christ and participate more fully in his life and do away with death. So that when we die, hopefully we're ready for the next life. I mean, we're already partly there, sharing his life. Okay? Okay. Um, I would not get catechetical. I just would not do that. 
My work was to focus on the Iliad, Othello, the Commedia, Faulkner, and whoever. If God was in the story, I'd bring him out. I'm not going to avoid it, but, um, but that was my work. I still feel strongly about that. Um, so the catechetical responsibility that I have is foremost in my mind, but it, it's somewhat in the background because I'm trying to focus on these works. My hope is that I can do it in a way that helps you see Christ so that we're more, we're more aware that he really is around us all the time doing something. Do we see it? I wouldn't be here if I thought we did. I mean, the class would be pointless. I, I met with Father last week. I haven't seen him in months, and I feel a little bit like a foreigner, an alien, actually, because our church is St. Francis, but I miss him. And we met and asked him how he was doing, and, and he's doing well. I mean, he, he came from a parish probably one-fourth the size of this one, and so he's, you know, I told him he's dealing with a city. <laughs> My God, when I hear the number, I'm not kidding. I mean, for me, I'm not kidding at all. I'm not exaggerating at all right now. I mean, how, how do you become a priest for a city? You know, 9,000 families, whatever, 20,000 plus people? That's a small city. Um, how, do you, how does a priest do that? I, I can't even imagine. Anyway, he was telling me about some of the things that he wanted to do, and I would like to ask something of all of you, you know, partly on Father's behalf, but also on my own. Um, I, my sense from what he said is that the tithing is not going well in this community. I'm sorry to hear that. So I'd like to make a personal plea on behalf of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. hope Father will forgive me here. Um, to take care where you can with the tithing. I'm, I'm going to get to that in an indirect way in a minute. It's going to jump on me, I think. But. So I'm asking everybody to take uh, your commitment to Christ seriously there, to, if you can, where you can, to, if you can, increase your tithing, because the, the church here so badly needs it. Um, badly needs it. Um, I would also encourage all of you, if anything's going on through this class, if you're inspired to do anything, Take up a ministry. Start a new ministry. Uh, I'm, really, I'm saying that really seriously. Um, um, offer yourselves in the church somewhere. Start up something. Be a disciple. Risk yourself. Genuinely risk yourself. And the other is to take very seriously what we're doing. Um, I don't want. I don't want this to stay in literature. It's not why we're doing this. Wherever you, I'm thinking of Portia, just for one example. If, if Merchant Venice means anything, it's showing us that this woman, if, because of her tradition, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because it bears on what we're doing. This woman is bringing something into Venice that Venice does not have. She's being, bringing a tradition of art, beauty, philosophy, religion, all those things that the secular city has lost. For a minute, to take, sorry, I'm really moralizing here. For a minute, take Portia out of that story. What will happen in that courtroom scene? Will, will anybody there resolve it? No. That means an injustice is going to be done. It's an injustice that's inherent in Venice. It's inherent in the contradictions in it. I hope everybody saw that, yeah? Take her out. That injustice becomes endemic. It goes on. It's only by virtue of what she does, and it's so important, I, I'm trusting everybody's on this, what she does is reconcile law and mercy. 
she does exactly what Christ did. Okay? This is Dante. If we get there together, Dante and the Paradiso is going to say, if you look at the nature assumed, no, no man was ever treated more unjustly, or sorry, more justly. If you look at the nature assumed, no man was treated more justly. He took on our nature to answer an injustice. An injustice had to be answered. A law had to be answered, right? We broke a law when we disobeyed God. Is everybody clear in that? We broke a law. As humans, we couldn't give satisfaction for it because we're, our sin was against God. What does that mean? <laughs> Study. Only a, a man who was above could answer that sin. How stunning is that? Right? We broke a law against God. Could man atone for that sin alone? No, because it was against God. Only a man who was also God could do that. Who did it? Christ. He answered a law. If you look at the nature assumed, our human nature, no, no man was more justly executed. That's why I did it. If you look at the person who assumed that nature, no man was more unjustly treated because he was God, he was innocent. And that's what he gets. So what Portia's doing is reconciling two things that ordinarily are easier to keep apart. You know, when we raise our kids, it's much easier to just let things go, right? Or to be too harsh, or in our marriages. What he's giving us in Merchant of Venice is that we have an image of a human being struggling to bring law and mercy together. So my hope is that learning these things will help us in our relationships with each other. Whatever crosses they ask for, whatever, whatever courage, whatever risking it involved. Did Portia not have to risk to do that? She had to risk everything. Right? And so did Bassanio when he wooed her. The whole, at the center of that play is risky. Risky means not knowing what the outcome, that is you have the courage to do something when the cost of it may be everything. So my prayers for this, our group, what we're doing is that we take, in the work that we're doing, whatever we learn to see here, we take it out and live it, whatever the cost. I'm not just teaching literature. So, my appeal, my request, my prayer, um, live it. <laughs> Sorry. There's a, I'm going to stop because this is, wait a second if you can. Um, one of the um, sunburst moments, turning moments in my life, um, a lot of people don't know this, but close friends do. When I was at the university, Suzanne and I were already married, and we had three kids, three kids. Um, I decided to go back for a PhD in the middle of my life. I mean, graduate students used to, it's really funny, graduate students used to come up to me and say, should I wait until my PhD is done, my PhD is done before I get married? Because most of the doctors that they went to, the PhDs would say, are, are you kidding? Don't give a thought to marriage before you. You finish your PhD and then get married. But here's a guy in graduate school who's married and has got two kids and going back to school. So naturally, kids are coming to me to say, Should I get married? They want to get married. 
my answer was, I can't tell you. It depends on how much you love. I mean, if you love that person, you risk it. You have to, that's a decision, you know, but, but it's not like there's a rule here. Um, so anyway, I did the PhD program, and I, there's a longer story here that's just amazing. It, it, we were all already on our way to conversion and we were coming into the Catholic Church, but, but when I was doing my dissertation, Louise Town, who was the, uh, my dissertation director at that time, came in over to my apartment every night. I was, in the middle of my life, I was not a young kid, we had three kids. I taught English before junior colleges, so I taught English. I, I don't think I was a great writer, I was a decent writer, but she sat down and went through my dissertation line by line by line by line. Nobody had ever done that, but she's, this is a dissertation. One day, towards the end of my writing, I got a, 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 an offer for a job in California when I was finished, so she was trying to help me along. It's just an amazing thing that she and her husband did. Donald Cantor, her husband, had been the president of UB. So Louise was at the table working with me. Donald was on a chair reading. I got up from the table. He was reading the last part of the chapter, or the book. And I walked by him, and he said something, and I, the words I didn't understand, they, could, they, they just didn't make sense to me. And then on my way back to the table, they connected. What he said was, this will take some doing to live up to. I read my, my dissertation on Hawthorne and he was somewhat amazed, I think, of what I was saying about the end. And what he was saying was, this will take some doing to live up to. The assumption in my, all of my years of teaching before that time was, most kids go to school to get smart. Who's asked today, who in a, who in a university today across the country, secular university, or even at a Catholic university, who will be asked to live what they learn? Actually bear that in your life. To have, once you've read something, the assumption was now you had to live it. Your, your, your life only just began. I don't think that's clear to you. When you read the Bible and you have to read it and think, I've got to live Christ. If we, <laughs> assuming we've all fallen enough times with our sins to know how hard that is. Um, that was just an extension of the same thing. Um, what they were saying was, you're not here to be smart, to show how smart you are to get good grades. You're here to grow in virtue. That's a frightening thing. I think I can say honestly that I've failed in lots of ways to do that, but that was their call. What she was saying is, when you see a truth, wherever it is, you have to live it. So that's my hope for this group. And I hope I see you all next week. Because <laughs> I know that increases enormously whatever we're doing. Um, so, anyway, okay, that's my appeal. It's a personal. Um, we're not here to learn literature. Actually, it's, there's two purposes. One, one of my purposes is to, to help all of us become Porsches. That we learn to take on the tradition that we take that tradition on, I'm going to come to this in a moment, because it's so, we take on that tradition and bring it to the world because the world doesn't know it. And my concern is, most Catholics no longer know it. I, I can't tell you how the dread that, that strikes in my heart. How many Catholics today carry their tradition with them? So, two things. One is to enter into this tradition, make it living, take it to the world, um, live what we Okay, so anyway, just a reminder of the pew.
Let's do Shakespeare. Belmont. 
um, it's it's to that place that the sunny goes, and it's from that place that worship comes to help um, rescue and okay. um, We talked about Belmont a little bit, just to repeat. Um, it seems to me that it, it's fairly clear if you look at what Portia's done and what her father did with her. Um, remember, she's obedient, her father put her under this will, and it shows his wisdom because he clearly knows men, um, what scoundrels they are, um, and what she has to do. Um, but one of the important things not to decide is that she images all that Belmer that Venice cannot come to. A love of art, beauty, order, philosophy, maybe most importantly. Because it's only because of her, we know from her words, remember she talks about the mean, she's read Aristotle, she knows Aristotle well. She's the only one who can see the end of the law. That the end of the law, from either perspective, from Shylock or the Christians, would be defeated. Right? Shylock would be too harsh, Antonio would be killed. If he's killed, the commercial regime disappears. Christians wanted him let off, Antonio let off. If he were let on, the regime disappears because nobody's going to be willing to risk it. She's the only one who can hold the law to not let it go and realize its end. Its end is the good of a person, justice, the justice of a person. I hope it's clear. Shylock didn't want justice. Yeah? He was using the law to kill Antonio. So he was hiding behind the law. She knew that the end of the law was better than that, what real justice was. So we're looking at the same regime, except now we're looking at it under its tragic aspect. And um, just a couple of things to look back at the commercial regime for a second. Remember, um, capitalism comes from the word kaput. It means head, capital. That's what it means, the head. Capitalism doesn't mean money, it means the head. So um, implicit in the commercial regime is the, um, the resourcefulness of the intellect. And I identified three of the major intellectual qualities um, peculiar to the regime. Resourcefulness, ingenuity, and risking. Those are fundamental to any entrepreneur who wants to try to succeed in business. And I asked what the perversions of those three virtues were, and I suggested they are cunning, deceit, and cheating. And you, you can see the connection. They all define Yago. He's cunning, he's deceitful, he cheats, he, uh, he cheats Rodrigo, he gets all of his money. So we, we see the dynamic once again that, that, that the intellectual virtues um, have defined the regime, but since they define it, so do their opposite. All those things that can be put to evil uses. I made the distinction between communication and communion. I can't remember who asked about it last week, but I would say communication is this. Communication defines the commercial regime in this sense. When the modus operandi, the end of a regime, is the um, constant production of things to keep people's appetites satisfied, that um, you create communication. Communication is means without ends. It's proliferation of means without ends. You just keep reproducing, but with no sense of end, right? This is the commercial regime. It's a secular regime. Is there any sense of a God in this regime? No, there's not. It defines itself by a repetition of means without ends. 
So communication means, okay, proliferation of means without end to keep things going, to keep the regime successful. We see that in some ways that's self defeating. Communion means something different. Communion, communion means participation, participation in the life of another. And we know in the church that it often involves a cross. That couldn't be farther away from the meaning of communication that's used today. When we take communion during the week or on the weekends, we, we believe we're participating in the sacrifice on the cross and we're given strength to bring that to our lives, our marriages, our families, what we do. Venice is the, is the rational regime. It can't see beyond rational reason. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I want to go to the book. Um, one of the last things I want to mention before I, I, I look at poetry is we see over and over again in both um, Merchant and in Othello, but most especially in Othello, that the, the Venice, as we know it, is a Christian regime. It's a Catholic regime. It looks back to the Catholic past, but it's a Catholicism that's no longer lived. Othello is a baptized Catholic. It's made explicit in one of the speeches. Um, so much of the language talks about damnation and faith and um, a lost love. And, uh, the word devil keeps coming up in association with Iago. Um, we're witnessing a regime that's on the verge of the modern world that has turned away from the Middle Ages, its Christian past, and is failing. So the, the world of Venice in Othello is the world on that break. Okay? Christian, we're, we're dealing with Christians who are no longer living their faith, or if they are, it's a shallow activity for them. And in Othello, we can put it this way, and we'll see this more clearly when I get to the text. Venice is distinct as a regime because it gives itself to capital, to the mind, to the intellect, its resourcefulness. It looks back to the Middle Ages, whose greatest virtues were courage and serving. The Christian knight was the ideal of the Middle Ages. Okay? Still in Chaucer, the Knight's Tale. You back to the Middle Ages, Mallory and whoever else you're reading, you're looking back to a world that's defined by courage, by actions. Right? The natural virtues were the virtues that define that, like prudence, prudence, justice, temperance, endurance. Those all ask something of people. What replaces them in the commercial regime? Honesty. It's how you appear to another person. Because you don't know a person by his opinion. Honest, you can be honest without the guy doing anything, right? Is everybody following? All those ancient virtues, though the natural virtues, um, only have meaning in relation to actions. Somebody doing something. We're in a world right now in which people aren't measured by what they do. They're measured by their appearance, whether they're honest or not. We're in a world of thought. We've moved away from a world of action into a world which is defined. The only action that's going on right now is in the mind. How does the algo trick Othello? We'll get to it in a minute. I mean, it's, it's terrifying to watch. He gets in his head. And once he does, Othello's what? Othello's a man of action. He comes from a third world where he's defined himself by his courage. That's why he's sent to Cyprus, right? 
The senators want him there because he's a man of action, because they're expecting a battle with the Moors, with the Turkish fleet. He's a, he's a soldier. Put that soldier, that really good man, put that soldier in the life of the intellect, what's going to happen to him? How capable, how, how, how ready is he to deal with that world? So what Shakespeare's showing us is a world, a new, a, a new kind of regime on, on the threshold of modernity, looking back to a world of action and looking ahead to a very different world. And it's defining itself in relation to the third world. Who, who's pounding on our borders? Immigrants from other worlds. They want to come to America. The other, the third world, the uneducated, right? Is everybody following? Venice is one of the most, one of the wealthiest, richest, most influential cities in the world at this time. It's a place of well-educated people. Who comes into this world? Who keeps coming to America? Immigrants from other countries. Don't have the education, don't have the money to come here thinking that this is going to be the American dream. So it's a paradigm. It's a paradigm of us today, okay? Let me stop. Any questions? I want to, I want to look at poetry briefly. There you go.
Let me let me just take a minute with the poetry because I want I want to go to a couple of things here because the I'm I'm a little bit worried that that my use of poetry may be a little bit abstract and I, I don't want to leave it that way. Remember, and I said there are basically three genres: the lyric, narrative, and drama. Lyric is what we've been reading at the beginning. And the lyric usually is an expression of the eye. It's the interior of the poet, yeah? It's what he feels for his beloved, generally. Narrative is telling a story about somebody. It's Jane Austen telling a story about Elizabeth, or Mark Twain telling a story about Huck Finn or Dickens about whoever it is, okay? It's a narrative, so the poet goes outside of himself um, to deal with the reality outside of himself, okay? Drama shows the reality on its own terms, as if there's no narrator, there's no person there. There's a lot more to it than that, and I, I'm going to get to more of it as we go along, but I want to just leave it there for now. We're dealing with drama. We've also been reading lyric poems. We start each class with a lyric, okay? We happen to be in drama. In a couple weeks, we're going to start the Alien, which will be our first narrative. It will be an epic work. But remember, I said that drama has two subforms. One of them is comic, one of them is tragic. Comment, the action of comedy goes from misfortune to good fortune. Something bad is going to happen and it turns good. Antonio's going to die. Um, Portia works out a resolution and everything ends well. Okay? Um, the action of tragedy is the opposite. The action of tragedy goes from good fortune to bad. Othello just married, everything looks good. Um, and suddenly something happens and it ends with a disaster. Okay? So the action's reversed. Okay? Now remember, every tragedy, and I, this is Aristotle talking about tragedy, every tragedy has three fun, or every good tragedy has three elements. Remember, the plot, the plot is an imitation of an action. All of these are the events this happened, this happened. This, all of these events are an imitation of an action. So the visible thing shows the invisible. Another way of putting this is that what Othello is about is the drama that goes on inside the soul of the major character, Othello, this one, Othello. So all these events help us to see this interior, this movement, this interior movement, this spiritual movement that goes on. Because I'm going to read some lines about it, because he begins with a sense of blessedness. He loves this woman. The, the statements he makes to Desdemona are some of the most powerful in all of Shakespeare's works. So the plot, Aristotle says, is an imitation of an action. And our focus will always be this action. It's the action of the real. There are three qualities. One is called the parakia. The term, the anagnorisis, the recognition, and the catharsis. The purging. And remember, in all tragedy, um, what's purged are the tragic emotions. And this is true for all tragedies. The two emotions that are purged are pity and fear. And the reason that that's so important is because those are the two emotions that are most paralyzing. If a mother's worried about her son doing drugs, 
realize that she'll do the opposite of what she should do because she feels sorry for her. How easy is it to overcome pity when you're watching somebody suffer? I hope that's clear. Most of us know. Every tragedy, the good tragedies, involve a catharsis of those emotions, pity and fear, because those are the emotions that most paralyze us. Let me take a second here. Is everybody clear the difference between pity and love? Pity is the emotion we feel when we identify with the suffering of another. So something of ourself is involved in it. We feel, far, we feel sorry for somebody because we can identify with that suffering. Right? That's pity. That's a natural emotion. What becomes dangerous is when somebody can't get off of it. Love is what we feel for another that asks that we give ourselves up for the good of another. That what we do involves an act of self-renunciation. What we do is for the, for the good of another, even when it's hard. Is that clear? So tragedy has these three aspects, a peripatia, a turn, an anagnosis, a moment of recognition, a scene. You, know, you all know where, I think you can see what happens in the film, and a catharsis, a purging. Okay? So that means every tragedy, no matter how disastrous it looks, always has a good as its end. It, it, it restores a people to a good by dealing with an evil. Something has to be overcome. Okay? Now, if that isn't clear, let me, let me make it this way because all of this is elemental and most people just look past it and we can't hear cannot. Um, let's take this for a moment. Let's say Merchant of Venice, that play, the play that we get, Merchant of Venice, called Merchant of Venice, stops just when Portia comes into the uh, courtroom. Cuts there, okay? What, have I asked this question? Did I do this before? Yes. Did I? Somebody's saying that. What happens? It's worthless, right? I mean, it's incomplete. Right? If it stops there, all of us are going to get frustrated because we don't know. Absurdity, absurdist playwrights always lead us to something absurd because for them there is no meaning in the world. For Shakespeare there is, so that every tragedy deals with something to overcome and ends good. That is, evils, the cost of it is great, people can die, but the regime is purged. Some evil is done away with. So at the end of the tragedy, we're left ready to start new again. It's a good place. The evil's answer. Is that clear? Every comedy ends in a good place. Change the endings and take away the endings, and you see, we'd be left in a meaningless universe, which is so often what we've experienced in lots of modern literature. Is all that clear? So let me ask this, just as a way of trying to make this clear. At the end of the play, because I'm trusting you all read it, um, at the end of the play, in the very final scene, when things are unfolding, you remember that um, Amelia comes into the room after Othello's strangled Desdemona, and um, Othello hears Cassio screaming, and he thinks Iago's killed him. So he thinks the plan is unfolding just the way he wanted. And then suddenly things start to unravel. Amelia comes in and sees Demona, and she screams murder. 
And when Othello accuses her, she makes clear to him that Desdemona's innocent. When the issue of the hanky comes up, she makes it clear that she gave, or that, yeah, she gave the hanky to Iago, and Iago dropped it in um, Cassio's room. Remember? Now at that point, remember when, when, when suddenly it, Othello's getting clarity on things, he sees that he didn't, he didn't. The way he saw things was not the way they were. That's absolutely crucial for good tragedies. He sees, like so many of us, this is why the recognition is so important. We go along thinking we know things. In fact, sometimes we act on them and without knowing that the actions that we take are the wrong ones because we think we're right. And then years later we'll discover, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. You know, I mean, those, those things are common, I think, to most of us. That's what goes on there. Now, here's my question. At that moment, at the end of the play, when people are starting to get clarity on things, Amelia sees Iago Seeper, Othello, Ludovic, all of them. Does Amelia see the whole tragedy? Does she see, even then, everything that went on? Did she, does she have any sense of the soliloquies the way we do from having read them in the book? Does Othello see everything? Does Desdemona, does Cassian, does any one of those characters have a glimpse of the whole that everybody's starting to put together? I hope it's clear, none of them does. Who does? In fact, let me put it this way. Which of those characters is closest to God, closest to God in seeing exactly what goes on? Is everybody clear? 
And I just want, because he's the only one here, what does it take for a poet to so get rid of himself that he can enter into what hope? Who was it? Um, I know not why I'm so sad. Each of the characters in Merchant misread him completely. Did the poet. When um, the Porsche was talking, or soliloquies, and maybe the soliloquies went on there. How, how was he able to get inside the heart of somebody as wise as Portia, or as evil as Iago, and do it in a way that could still show an action that was dealing with evil and overcoming it? Take a look at all those characters. Not a single one of them get close to what the poet is doing. It's my way of saying right now, I've been making this, putting out this proposition at the beginning, that poetry is prophetic. It helps us to see things that we don't see without it. I'm trusting that everybody saw that in Merchant, and now we're seeing it again, except now we're seeing it in a play that deals with evil. The poet is the one person's closest to God in showing the, the deepest feelings of people that sometimes they're not even capable of knowing themselves. I'm going to illustrate that just now. But just hold on to it. How can he do that without putting himself away, denying himself so as to do justice to that person? That person's in tears. How he, if any of you have ever tried writing and you try to get out of yourself and into another character, how easy is it to do that as a part of an unfolding action? So the poet is doing an extraordinary thing here. Okay? He's the one closest to God. I'm going to argue that insofar as the aim of the play is justice and mercy, he's the one who most fully realizes Christ. So it's important to pay attention to him, what he's doing, okay? Now let me take that as a start. I want to go to come at this another way. Um, a this is really important, and I think you'll all be intrigued by this. A modern critic, one of the most important modern critics in literature today is a Russian called Bakhtin. He's a Russian formalist who makes the argument that the novel has replaced all the canonic genres. Lyric, tragedy, comedy. Because he says those other genres are too governed by um, by verse requirements. You have to follow certain verse, meter, and rhymes. Whereas in the novel, you can present characters speaking in their own voices. They're not trying to conform to a verse requirement, right? You know, you know that Shakespeare does that. I remember I read those lines where every word ends with ring, 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 ring. Um, and he's saying that that's an artificial convention. The novel is closest to reality. It most captures what's open-ended about reality. So it's a much more reliable genre than a tragedy or comedy theory. Okay? That's a very important criticism. There's a lot of truth to it. I happen to fundamentally disagree with it. Let me go there. So. Look at 1-3, Act 1, Line 3. I feel like I'm making an appeal for poetry today, but I hope you'll see the relevance of this. As you all know, I'm arguing that if we don't, if we don't recover a sense of poetry, that is, if we don't recover, here, let me put it more basically. If we don't recover a greater appreciation for language, not just for communion, I mean for communication, but for communion, 
we are lost. Because it's only through language that we can come together at all. True, true words, true lower word, okay? Okay. Act, act one, scene three. Line around 81 or so. Remember, this is when Bobaccio is so furious, he learns Desmond is eloped. Um, he wants to go to the governor to get his support to um, arrest a fellow. And to his embarrassment, he's going to be turned down because they want a fellow to go to Cyprus to protect their interests. So this is this moment of confrontation, and this is what happens. Uh, I want to... Uh, where's that? Oh, here. I want to read two things here, and then I want to, I'm going to pull together a couple of other speeches. Look at, sorry, this, I'm not used to this stuff. Um, line 59, Act 1, Scene 2, Line 59. This is the early part of this confrontation. So the soldiers come together, it's the Senate and it's bodyguard and Othello. Iago says, you are who come, sir, I am free. So Iago's pretending to fight. He's going through this pretense, so he's already putting on a play. And then Othello says, Keep up your bright sword. This is stunning. This is stunning. This is a general talking. Keep up your bright swords, for the duel will rust them. Good senor, you show more command with years than with your weapons. Othello's ready to respect him because of his age. He doesn't want to fight. What does he mean when he says, Keep up your bright swords, for the duel will rust them? Christian 
flea is almost destroyed. Remember, the Turkish fleet doesn't get through. They finally arrive, and this is what Othello says to Desdemona. He gives me wonder, great is my content to see you here before me, O oh, my soul's joy. If after every tempest comes such calms, let the winds blow till they have wakened death. And let the laboring bark climb hills of seas, Olympus high, and duck again as low as hells from heaven. If it were now to die, turn now to be most happy. For I fear my soul hath her content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. Tell me another lover who speaks words like that. Desdemona comes to remember when she's um, acting on behalf of Cassio, and she's starting to press his case, and he says, amen to that, sweet powers. This is, um, I think, Act, two, act 3, scene 3, around line 90. Amen to that, you don't have to go, to just listen. Amen to that, sweet powers, I cannot speak enough of this content. Oh, wait, this is still here. It stops me here, it's too much of joy, and this and this the greatest discords be. He kisses her, that bare our hearts shall make. Act 3, scene 3, line 90. This is when she's pressing her suit to Cassio, and he's saying, be still, you know, she's, she, and things have not gotten worse yet, just at, at the beginning of it. He says, excellent wretch, perdition catch my soul, but I do love thee. And when I love thee not, chaos has come again. And this is the end. We're gonna, I'm, we'll get to it because next week, I'm going to hold off the end until next week and we'll finish that little bit. This is the end. In, act, in the very final scene, Shakespeare's bending over the bed. Desdemona's asleep. So Othello. And she's asleep, and next to her is a lighted candle. So when he talks about extinguishing the light, he's comparing what will happen when he takes her soul against putting out the candle. Because you know if he puts out the candle, he'll light it again. So this is this extraordinary man. Remember, all tragic heroes are extraordinary figures. They're, I'll come back to that when we come back next week. But extraordinary people. He's an extraordinary person. He loves this woman. I've been reading his poetry. Now he's bent over this woman who he's loved deeply. Iago's worked his evil on him. And he's brought Othello to this point. Othello feels like a man in a court of law bringing justice to a woman he believes is evil, a traitor. That's in his head, he believes it. And he says, just like a lawyer in a courtroom, it is the cause, it is the cause of my soul. Let me not name it to you, you chase stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, else she betray more men. Put out the light, and then put out the light. If I quench thee, thou flaming minister, I can again thy former light restore. It's looking at the camera. Um, but once put out thy light, thou cunningest pattern of excelling nature, I know not where is that Promethean heat but can thy light loom? When I have plucked the rose, I cannot give it vital growth again. It must needs wither. I'll smell it on the tree. He kisses her. A balmy breath that almost does persuade justice to break her sword. He loves her so much that you'd rather see justice undone right now. 
Um, a balmy breath that does almost persuade justice to break her sword. One more, one more. Be thus when thou art dead, and I will kill thee and love thee after. One more, and is the last. So sweet was ne'er so fatal, I must weep. But there are cruel tears, the song's heavenly, it strikes where it doth love. You know that he's, she's going to wake and there will be a moment of tension between the two of them and right there. But here's my question. Bakhtin said, the novel is the only authentic, really truly authentic genre because it, it most faithfully renders the words of real people. Okay? Othello's just said a few months ago, you know, that earlier, he said, I'm rude of speech. He's inarticulate, he can't speak, right? He comes from this, he's a, he's a, you call an athlete, a, a jock. He's a warrior. You know, he's, he, he prides himself in his strength. He's a man of honor. But he speaks the most incredible lines that, that I know of in any of Shakespeare's plays. You can't find another lover that speaks lines like this. So either we, so, how do we understand what Shakespeare's doing? I'm going to leave that question there. Just I'm not going to point it anywhere. What is Shakespeare doing? He's either window dressing, yeah. He's, I mean, lots of people from the very beginning of the time from the play one submitted to Thomas Hobbes, who wrote the Leviathan in the beginning of the Social Contract Theory. He said all poets are liars or falsifying things. Even Plato was. Pretty harsh on poets. Either he's falsifying, he's telling lies, he's, this is window dressing, he discovered something, or he's doing something else. Because clearly, Othello is rude of speech. He comes from a backward country. He's superstitious, he's not cultivated, not educated. What's going on here with this poetry? Hmm? Sigourney. Joe, can you flesh that out? Can you elaborate on that at all? That's the word. We believe that each one of us is created in the image of Christ. 
Yeah? I, I don't know if I use this term, the, the anima naturality Christianity. Did I use that, use that term here? It's one that C.S. Lewis, Lewis uses in uh, Two Essays to describe the natural Christian soul. Anima naturalite Christiana, the naturally Christian soul. Has anybody ever been convinced? We believe that each person is created with a transcendent aspect to his soul. We're not just physical things, right? So that every time we're created, we actually participate in God's being. There's something eternal in us. That's why abortion to us is a wrong. That's why virginity is so important. When a woman gives herself, she opens to that being. Because when she, she's, the, she's the means by which an image of Christ is brought into the world, yeah? So if each person is created in the image of Christ, how, how good are we at giving words to our deepest longings, the deepest things in us? So I think, I mean, I, I think Joan's on it here that um, could it, is, <laughs> I can't, is Othello aware of the depths of his feelings to her? Could he ever express it in words without the poet? It's my way of going back to what Portia did with her speech on mercy, you know, beyond her. That it's the poet who, who can show us things that sometimes we're not even aware of. We can, we can want to say something about the love we feel for the beloved, whoever it is we love. But don't we generally find ourselves falling short that, that it's so hard to get to those words? They're so deep, so obscure. One of the greatnesses of the poet is that he can show things about Othello that I don't think even Othello is aware of in himself. These are the depths of his soul. So when he says root of speech, I think we're meant to take it seriously. He, truly, this is an uneducated man. But we're, he's also been recently converted. He's been baptized as a Christian. But what we see in this man are these expressions of a love that's rare in Shakespeare's canon. And yet he's going to kill this love. Okay? So two things to keep in mind right now. One is the city. It's still Venice. We're on the threshold of modernity. We're entering into the modern world. Shakespeare, through his poetry, is helping us to understand the city, to know what we're up against, what we're dealing with in this regime, and why. But he's also showing us um, the possibilities for evil, how secret they are, how hard, how hard it is to detect, and how susceptible people part to it. And in Othello, he's showing us a man who's an extraordinary man, who has this great capacity to feel. He feels these things through this woman, and he's going to be destroyed. Okay? So, this relationship between poetry and city, for Shakespeare, was a very real one. It was his way of showing us something beyond the family, that has an influence on the family, sometimes greater than the family knows. Um, he's showing us that the worst things about ourselves and the greatest things about ourselves. This is us, this is our regime. And let me do one more thing before we stop. I just want to take a few minutes, and then next week we'll finish Othello, and the, the, probably the week after we'll start the Oswald and Oswald, okay? Turn to the, um,
turn to two to uh, actually seem to
regime. I don't want to don't answer, but just because we've got to come back to this. We, we've got, before we leave this play, we've got to answer that question. What's, what's wrong that they're so susceptible? And the ironies, the ironies are building, but right now they weren't. I mean, they're significant, symbolic in a major way. But that will say, get on guard. They've already been, the enemy's gone. That's, that even magnifies the irony. They're in no way prepared for what's about to happen, because what's going to happen? Yeah, right now, the audience is going to set everything in motion, and things are going to unravel. Step after step after step after step. Who can see? Where are they looking? What's wrong with the way they're looking? Now go to um, um, the scene where um, Act 3, Scene 3. This is the scene in which Desdemona comes to Othello. I'm only going to take two minutes and then we're going to stop because our time's up and I already owe you. So Desdemona comes to Othello and wants to um, give support for Cassio because you know that he's already been uh, put on suspension because of getting drunk and starting to fight. So Desdemona leaves. Um, Cassio uh, is an issue right now. About line 90 or so, Iago says, My noble lord, what does that say, Iago? Did Michael Cassio, when you wooed my lady, know of your love? This is where it starts. Mark that place. He did from first to last. Why do you ask? But for a satisfaction of my thought. Now, from this point on, if you just reread this section, circle every, every word having to do with thought or thinking or one of its cognates. To know, to think, thought, you almost can't read two lines without getting one of those words. But for a satisfaction of my thought, no further harm. Why had I thought, Iago? I did not think he had been quite... I'm sorry, I'm going to underline this, but you know that in the play I sh shouldn't do this, but right now I'm going to be a bad reader. Oh yes, it went between us very often. Indeed, indeed, I indeed. Sir, now odd in that? Is he not honest? Honest, my lord? Honest, I honest, my lord, for aught I know. What dost thou think? Think, my lord? Think, my lord. By having echoes me, as if there were some monster in his thought. Go down, he says, he was aware of the wooing. My lord, you know I love you. I think thou dost, and for I know thou art full of love and honesty, and weigh thy words before thou givest them breath. Therefore these stops thine fright me the more, for such things in false disloyal made are tricks of custom, but in a man that's just, thinks that young is just, they are close relations. That is, genuine people give away their thoughts, they can't hide them. For Michael Cassio, I dare swore, I think that he's honest. I think so too. It should be what they seem, or those that be not, what they might seem not. Certain it should be what they seem. Go down. Um, as thou dost ruminate, give the worst of thoughts, the worst of words. Good, my lord, pardon me, though I am bound to every act of duty, I am not bound to what slaves are free to utter my thoughts to. Go down. Thou dost conspire against thy friend, Iago. If thou dost thinkest him wrong, and makest his, his ear strange to thy thoughts, it'll go on like this for several more pages. Shakespeare's hitting us over the head. What's going on? Why this emphasis on thought? 
Him. Him. And it raises several questions for us. One is that looking back to the ancient regimes, the natural virtues, they should be for us. Prudence, courage, wisdom, temperance. Um, those, those virtues belong to a world of acting. Honesty belongs to a world of seeing. When you're in a world which you are constantly trying to depend on and you're trusting that it's honest. You don't know. You all know that that's his epithet, honest Tiago. I mean, it, it just it, it repeats almost as much as the words on it. Um, and there's another interesting problem here. It's, it's because, and think about the importance of this. There's a line in Hamlet where Polonius says, I think I can get to the heart of the man's soul. The modern world thinks it can penetrate thought. It, it can get inside of a man and know it. What's Freud's presumption? He can get to the inner dynamics of the soul and lay it there so we know it. Every science depends on determinism. It's things that can't be other than they are. Right? They're, they're determined. For Freud, the determinisms were um, it's a polymorphism verse and the Oedipus conflict and things like that. There were these psychological dynamics. That all of this happened and we can get to them and control them and understand them. So one of the presumptions of the modern world is that we can, we can know the inner workings of a person. What is Shakespeare showing us here? How often we're fooled in thinking we do when we don't. And right now, when the action is turning, this focus is there. Thought, yes, thought, thought, think, thought. Because what's happening right now is is Othello's on that verge where he's turning from a world of action into an interior world where he has no sense of where he's going or what he's going to meet. And this is where Iago begins to do his work. So here we are on the verge of eternity, leaving an old world behind. We're in a Catholic world, it's Venice, but it's a world that's lost its faith and is um, almost absolutely unprepared to deal with evil. And that's what we're going to see here. Okay? Next week we'll pick up here. I'm going to pick up with this scene. We'll go to the end of the um, end of the play with what happens with this moment. But I want to I want to give some time for you all just to get some thought to that. What is it about? We've named some of the things, but I just don't think we've named enough or all of them. What is it about this regime that makes it so hospitable to evil that makes such an opening? Because it doesn't exist anywhere else. What is it about this modern world that gives you out of this place? Okay? Because if you know what's going to happen. It's, it, it's going to destroy love. It's going to take this love of this extraordinary man. It's going to destroy it. So Shakespeare's showing us something, something not small at all. Whatever we call this thing that Iago's got, its aim is to destroy love. Okay? Um, I hope you have a joyful week. Reading this dark tragedy. <laughs> Struggling with all this evil.
Yes, sir. How are you? How are you? I want to. Um, I want to get uh, all of my audience on the home side. I want to get one, one little bite, just know what it tastes like. There's two concerns I have, and I don't know that you're yeah. showing yes or no. no. I don't want to take the time to do that, but I want to know something. It's okay, just lose it. One is, um, I want to get a blog and, and make this table so it's yeah. And the other is, um, some of the authors are here. Something I can do. Can you can you help with either of them? And if you're yeah. busy, I'm glad to leave them alone because I never got your hands full. Yeah, you have your hands full, but I, I can definitely think about it. Here's the audio. Here. No, thank you. Audio recordings from the website. See, I, we do the audio. We do the audio, and I, they've been put 